0: Shao Khan, Emperor of Outworld. The Earth was created in six days, so too shall it be destroyed. And on the seventh day, mankind will rest in peace. This is not good. Hi, welcome to To the 90s and beyond the film podcast that covers films of the 1990s as well as films that came out sometime later that were influenced by those films as well as films to the 1980s because this is a movie podcast that is also a companion piece to my other podcast called around the world in 80s movies if you're interested in that podcast i do encourage you to check out my website it's at quipster.net q-w-i-p-s-t-e-r.net all the links are there for you to find my other podcasts as well as check out my written reviews. I've been doing film reviews actually since the 1990s, 1996 to be specific. So 25 years of film reviews you can read there anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Today I'm going to be getting into the third part of what is likely to be a five-part series looking at the Mortal Kombat films, not only of the 1990s but more recent movies as well. I took a look at Mortal Kombat as well as its animated video companion called Mortal Kombat The Journey Begins. Today I'm going to be getting into the official Mortal Kombat sequel to that 1995 film. It came out in 1997 and it is called Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Mortal Kombat Annihilation is a PG-13 rated film. It does have violence and some language. The runtime is an hour and 31 minutes. Robin Shu, James Remar, Talisa Soto, Sandra Hess, Brian Thompson, Lynn Red Williams, Rainer Shine, Darren McBee, Masetta Vander, Marjean Holden, and Irina Ponteva are in the film. The director is John R. Leonetti, and the screenplay credited to Brent V. Friedman and Bryce Zabel. Now, back in the mid 1990s, merchandising tie ins to movies they were even more lucrative than the movies themselves. In fact, the revenues for movie tie-ins were three times the amount of money made by the individual movies from which they stemmed from. Although the pie of the profit was bigger if you looked at it in total for these movies, the slices were becoming much more thin among the companies in these various industries trying to do their merchandising tie-ins. So Threshold Entertainment founder and producer, Larry Kasanoff, resolved that the big money was actually in the pie-making business. He wanted to own all of the merchandising rights if he could, which is why he bought full control of the Mortal Kombat franchise outside of the games. Following the smash success of 1995's, Mortal Kombat movie, Kasanoff continued his Mortal Kombat mass market media blitz, a direct-to-video animated special, a live touring stage show, a platinum-selling soundtrack, a CD-ROM, a website, toys, apparel, an animated cartoon series on the USA Network called Mortal Kombat Defenders of the Realm. Each of these slices supported all of the other slices in the pie, with Midway's games and the film property, providing the tin that held all of that pie together. Now, with Midway's Mortal Kombat 4 arcade game scheduled for release in 1997, Kasanov knew that the hype for that game was going to be huge, and that would likely spill over for, if he could get it in theaters by then, Mortal Kombat 2. Now, if he played it right, the rewards would be unimaginable how massive that would be, so he determined that he wanted to have full creative control. He wanted to focus intently on delivering a sequel that was going to supercharge interest in all of these other Mortal Kombat products that he had coming out in the next few years. And part of retaining control was he was going to forego Mortal Kombat's screenwriter, Kevin Droney. His original contract gave Droney first crack sequel screenplay dibs. Droney would successfully sue for a breach of contract later. But instead, Kasanoff brought in a writer of his own, a friend of his who worked for Threshold Entertainment on a family film idea that he had, Britt V. Friedman. Friedman was collaborating at that time with Bruce Zabel to create and write and produce a TV show called Dark Skies. Threshold hired both writers to come in, script a story treatment that Kazanoff had developed with Threshold writer-producer Joshua Wexler and one of the game's creators, John Tobias, based primarily on the structure of Mortal Kombat 3. Now, because on the last film, New Line ended up having to fund 10 million additional dollars in post-production to try to add fight sequences and try to fix inconsistent character elements that were disappointing to the game's hardcore fans that they polled, Kasanov promised them he was going to find out everything that fans wanted in the pre-production phase. Threshold's official Mortal Kombat website featured a forum where fans directly voiced their opinions on what they hoped that they were going to see in the next movie. Kasanov regularly mined this forum for ideas. He was going to please this critical component of the target audience right off the bat. For instance, fans talked about how they wish they could see Raiden fight, so Kasanov he concocted a story element for the next film, where Raiden forfeits his god powers to battle as a mortal. Kasanov asked fans, rank every component of the original 1995 Mortal Kombat as either excellent or good or fair or poor, for the sequel he was going to expand those aspects those fans considered excellent and he was just going to scrap all of the rest. He also wanted to take all of the big ideas that he had wanted to put in the first film but they couldn't do due to budget or time issues and to put them into the sequel the title eventually became Mortal Kombat Annihilation. He wanted to avoid the numeral 2 to avoid confusion with the game Mortal Kombat 2. Kasnov determined through market research that while Mortal Kombat was a resounding success among teenage viewers, especially boys, older audiences found the plot a bit too simplistic. So for the sequel, Kasnov wanted to have a plot that broke out of that arena fighting realm into more of a full-blown adventure. Less Enter the Dragon, more Dungeons & Dragons. Stakes would be raised by replacing the Hero's Quest from the 1995 film with a scenario where these characters have to unite to save the world. Kasanov wanted also more sex appeal. He wanted actors that looked like they could be models, but who had the ability to deliver a kick in skin-tight wardrobe as well as memorized dialogue. That also should increase the appeal, he thought to older audiences, as well as having more of a female component being more appealing perhaps to female viewers. Now, after Studio Bean counters estimated that the first draft of their script was going to cost $75 million to produce, Friedman brought in Dark Skies script coordinator Adam Siegel to help reduce the costs in half while also retaining as much as they could of the storyline. But Removed was a costly prison break subplot involving Liu Kang rescuing characters like Stryker and Cabal as slaves in this outworld cobalt mine. And there were other elements that they thought were too ambitious, so they had to retool a lot of that to a much more modest scope. Annihilation promised to be three times as ambitious as the original film, with only 50% more budget to try to cover over a hundred additional digital effects shots using more photorealistic elements rendered in 3D with motion capture technology. To save money, they employed Sprint's drums network and that would allow them to instantly share video and graphics with technical facilities around the world at a fraction of the cost of traveling there or shipping items back and forth. Now, as far as what this film ultimately is about, Portals that exist between Outworld and Earthrealm are illegally opened by Outworld's Emperor Shao Kahn, who has decided that the rules of Mortal Kombat need not really apply to him. This leaves the world's mightiest fighters of Earth only six days to vanquish this new threat and to close these portals or lose Earthrealm to the powers of evil. They return to Outworld to fight for humanity's fate. Very simple plot there, even though they were trying to make it a little more complex for the more adult viewers. Now on the Monday following Mortal Kombat in 1995, it had a smash opening weekend. New Line immediately pursued Paul Anderson to return for a sequel, but he declined. Between his sometimes contentious relationship with Larry Kasanoff and feeling like he had exhausted all of his ideas in the first film, he saw greener pastures in directing Event Horizon, which he proclaimed to be the most unique screenplay he'd read in some time. Kasnov contemplated taking over as director, but he didn't really have as much passion for that as he did just being the producer, where he controlled not only the direction, but every aspect of his feature from beginning to end. But Kasnov did want to retain as much as the crew as possible, so when he asked John Leonetti to return as the cinematographer, Leonetti, at that time, expressed interest in the director gig. Kasanoff thought about it and came to the conclusion that he loved that idea, because Leonetti had mentored this inexperienced Paul Anderson to success in the first film, and he knew exactly what needed to be done for the second film. Besides, uh, there was a cinematographer in the mid-1990s named Jean de Bont, who had really successfully transitioned to the director's chair with films like Speed and Twister, so New Line surmised that Leonetti could also follow suit. Leonetti had a major adjustment to make in terms of usually being the person who asked the director questions to being the person who had to answer all of the questions from pretty much everybody on the set. But he did find comfort in working with the actors, and he also enjoyed staging the fight sequences. He did have ambitious ideas to try to draw audiences directly into the action. He w- really wanted to create a 3D scope within a 2D framework. He wanted to place cameras on the actors on the stunt people. They would be on bungee cords, they would be behind plexiglass right in the middle of the fight sequences. Very ambitious in terms of getting us right into the action. Now, For his cinematographer, Leonetti hired the person that he trusted most in the industry, his older brother, Matthew. And meanwhile, Larry Kasanoff, he did get to direct somewhat in this feature. He served as the second unit director on occasion, especially in the fight sequences. Now, Kasanoff, as the producer, though, did feel that location shooting was financially comparable to having to build all new sets if the cast and the crew were kept to modest accommodations and modest meals. So the production, even though it spanned five countries, England, Wales, Thailand, Jordan, and Israel, they would try to use as much as possible locales as they existed currently, because these locations were rarely seen on film, so they would look new to most audiences. Some of those locales, though, were designated as sacred sites in their respective countries, so Kaznov did have to do some finagling, assuring the governmental authorities that their sacred sites would be portrayed positively and treated with respect. Now, to save time with the production, two separate production crews had to work simultaneously. Interiors were mostly shot in Leavesden Studios in London, while another crew was shooting in these other countries. Illnesses among the cast, they really began when they were shooting in Wales, where they were freezing in these skimpy costumes while trying to fight in icy mud during this freak hurricane that came into the area. In addition to causing muscles to get pulled because they were tightening from that cold, they also found themselves inhaling a lot of smoke and Fuller's Earth clay dust, used to create fire and grit for those sequences. The director, Leonetti, developed acute bronchitis from all of that stuff he was inhaling, and it wasn't helping that it was so cold and wet. Besides, Annihilation was the first production to film in the country of Jordan with a partial Israeli crew. Because Israel had suffered some recent terrorist setbacks, Kasanov did worry that their production crew in Jordan might be targeted for an attack, but... He did resolve that the terrorists would be winning if they didn't go because of that fact. The Jordanians happened to be inexperienced with effects films, so the Israelis were really needed, but they couldn't do without the Jordanian crew either because without electricity or self service in remote areas of Jordan, the Jordanians were needed because they could navigate the terrain there and they could also deal with a lot of the locals who were inquiring as to what was going on. In the holy city of Petra in Jordan, the Israelis saw places normally forbidden to them due to the political climate. They looked upon the city within the stone. They got tears in their eyes. Kasanov was surprised to find that despite all of the hostilities between the countries of Israel and Jordan, as well as the lack of amenities on site, the Jordanian shoot was the smoothest of the entire production except for one time, a locally prepared lunch that consisted of fresh monkey brains. Thailand, which they filmed in for the first movie, it proved just as tough as it was the first time around because of the oppressive heat and the bugs all over the place. The warehouse that served as their soundstage, it lacked air conditioning. It sometimes heated up to 140 degrees Fahrenheit. There was a monk who was local to the area who came in and he blessed the set and he blessed the crew. All of that really to little avail because nearly everybody got sick from the flu or pneumonia or food poisoning or dysentery. Some of them were even hospitalized. Although the director, Leonetti, he decided even though he had pneumonia at some point, he was going to work through it. And that was primarily because the first assistant director also was out of commission. He was rushed to a hospital because a moth had fluttered into his ear canal and was causing him severe pain and needed to be surgically extracted. The production did suffer some cultural shock when they were filming in Thailand because the Thai Government Committee on Religious Affairs, they were very sensitive to the portrayal of the Buddhist faith for commercial purposes. They were upset at the film's ignorance of the Buddhist principles of peace and tolerance because they were depicting Buddhist priests paying respects an evil warlord in the film. So they sought to confiscate property used by the film production at the historical temporal ruins of Ayutthaya because the authorities claimed that the crew there was desecrating the ruins, not only through the portrayal of the religion, but also they were setting off smoke bombs and staging fight scenes on ancient holy artifacts and temples that had been used for centuries for religious purposes. The production team, though, claimed that outsiders were mistakenly taking the 400 by 300 foot styrofoam and scaffolding set that they had built on the site as the real ruins, and they were not actually touching those sacred ruins. Now, as far as the casting goes, that developed into one of the main problems from fans, because Annihilation recasts most of the major characters from the first film. The only prominent returning actors are Robin Shu and Talisa Soto, Now, Shu, in addition to his first top-billed role in an American film, he also happened to be helping with the casting of the film, as well as the fight choreography, so he was spread very thin for this film. James Remar, he became Raiden because Christopher Lambert deemed the script terrible and did not want to return, especially after the experience of being in the Highlander sequels that were also quite terrible, and he thought that it should have ended in the first film. Chris Conrad stepped in for Lyndon Ashby as Johnny Cage. Very briefly, though, Ashby had a sequel deal, but he was also set to star on the TV show called Spy Game. Ashby said that he would return if he was going to be given enough money, but Kasnoff really didn't think Ashby had huge box office appeal to really justify his high salary demand. So... He decided he was gonna reduce Johnny Cage's scenes to allow Ashby to perform his part in just a few days before he had to get ready for spy game. Ashby, though, opted out after being told he was not only not gonna be paid any more than he would on the first film, but also his character was gonna get killed off in this feature, which he didn't really like. He didn't think he needed to be there for that. Now in the case of Sonya Blade, Kasnoff was much more ambivalent about returning Bridget Wilson because She not only made a little bit more money because she was signed on at the last minute, but he also preferred somebody more physically agile and sexy and, of course, affordable for that role. She was replaced eventually by Swiss actress Sandra Hess after Shu's Beverly Hills Ninja co-star Nicolette Sheridan backed out. Now, for the fight sequences, Shu and Leonetti studied the works of Hong Kong director Choi Hawk for how Hawk utilized the set to enhance fight choreography organically. They determined that each fight was going to showcase different fighting styles. They would mostly be blending the Eastern martial arts style that you would find in films of Jet Li with the Western style that you would find in films of Steven Seagal for more international appeal. Meanwhile, Kasanoff searched the world over for the best martial artists available through a variety of disciplines to put into the film. Now because of the bifurcated shoot, the actors they could not be in two locations at once, so body doubles were often employed, especially during the fight scenes. Thai action star Tony Ja, he actually got a start in Hollywood by doubling for Robin Shu during a, a few of the action sequences in Annihilation, especially against Baraka. Ray Park, he doubled for Remar's fight sequences as Raiden Park was in London teaching gymnastics at the time at a youth center, and he responded to this call for locals who had wushu martial arts training. His performance during that time got him noticed by the production team that was making Star Wars Episode I, The Phantom Menace at Leavesden, and they hired him on to play Darth Maul for their feature, and he became a Hollywood regular. Now, Brian Thompson, who plays the main heavy in this film, he had attained a red belt in Hapkido prior to auditioning as Shao Kahn. Thompson estimates that he lost 20 pounds from the oppressive heat and the illness that he incurred from food in certain location work. South African-born actress and professional dancer Musetta Vander, she joined late because she had commitments to the TV show Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She really wasn't involved in pre-production at all, so she missed that martial arts training, so she called upon her dance training to try to learn movements in a hurry when her first scene was moved up in the schedule due to an injury to another actor sometime later. Ex-football player Lynn Red Williams, he worked as a an American gladiator on the show American Gladiators. He was called Sabre on that show. He had a black belt in karate and could bench press 500 pounds, an impressive guy in person. Leonetti actually said he was going to hire him as Jax, a very popular character in the game, briefly portrayed by Gregory McKinney in the first Mortal Kombat film. But he really wanted Williams for this role because when he walked through the door to the audition, he had such an incredible physique and a very likable face. He thought he could be a star in his film. Now, for Jax, as with the first film, he was originally cast with Michael J. White, who then dropped out in both instances. In the first movie, White left because he wanted to star in the HBO biopic called Tyson. And in the second film, he left to star in another New Line production, Spawn. White did... Eventually played Jax much later in the 2010 short film called Mortal Kombat Rebirth, and he also appeared as Jax in the 2011 web series called Mortal Kombat Legacy. Now also from American Gladiators is Darren McBee, who played Malibu on the show. He plays the non-CG portion of the centaur character called Motaro. He got the role of Motaro after losing... Out on playing Shao Khan to Brian Thompson, he complained bitterly because the horns placed on his head gave him major headaches. So even though he had fun being in a movie, this was not an easy shoot for him with all of the makeup and the pain involved in keeping all of that stuff on to simulate a centaur. Sometime later, Keith Cook. He happened to be one of the few other actors who returned from the first film. Now, he played Reptile in Mortal Kombat from 1995. After he had auditioned and failed to get the Liu Kang role to his longtime friend, Robin Shu, he was initially offered the role of Baraka for the sequel, but they upgraded him to Sub-Zero sometime later. Chris Casamasa, he actually was cast to appear in in Annihilation, but he dropped out of his reappearance as Scorpion because he had a scheduling conflict as George Clooney's stunt double that he was portraying in Batman and Robin. Kasanoff did bring back Casamasa for the TV show Mortal Kombat Conquest, though, so no hard feelings there. J.J. Perry, who doubled for Lyndon Ashby in 1995's Mortal Kombat, he went on to play Scorpion, as well as Cyrax and Noob Saibot. Noob Saibot, by the way, that's a Boone and Tobias, spelled backwards. Dana Lin He, she plays Katana's twin sister, Melina. I don't think she's called that by name in the movie, but she was a gold medal winner at the 1988 Olympics for Taekwondo. She had spent many years in Hollywood as a stunt double, so this was kind of a big acting break for her. She, She also doubled for Talisa Soto in Mortal Kombat. American actress and stuntwoman Margine Holden, she plays Shiva. Shiva was going to play a much more prominent role from the script, but it was whittled down a lot over time in favor of showcasing other characters they wanted to shoehorn into the film. Now, Holden had been working for months on her martial arts training, so she got very frustrated and asked why she was just not taken out altogether. She was told that she did, they didn't want to avoid disappointing the character's fans, so therefore she remained, even though she was dispatched very easily in this film. In fact, there was going to be a big fight sequence between Shiva and the mortal version of Raiden. It was cut due to money and time limitations on CG. A Siberian model named Irina Panteva comes in and portrays Jade. Now as far as the special effects goes, Alison Savage did return to supervise the visual effects yet again, and she also took an executive producer role here. The Savage really wanted to push the limits of motion-capture technology, introduce fight sequences between a live-action performer and a CG character. But unlike prior attempts, when the CG character was usually added on computer later, they had a stunt person in a suit that was covered with infrared dots that were instantly computer-translated into a 3D-designed CG entity, that they calibrated to every motion. The technology they found was so successful, they even added a fight sequence involving two CG characters. Now, it's reported that the director, Leonetti, brought in Annihilation under budget and days ahead of schedule. That was told in the media, but really, Kasnoff wanted this remaining time to fix narrative gaps and incomplete CG. So Kasnoff got New Line to push the August 1st release date to November 21st, because he wanted to work with the screenwriters to try to plug the story holes from all of the things that they were chopping out. They were gonna dub in alternate dialogue through the ADR post-production work to try to fix some of that, to try to cover over the scenes that were no longer there. Now, in hindsight, Kaznov does wish that he had been bold enough to ask for additional resources for reshoots to fix all of these issues and to bolster the effects, but he was so pressured by Newline to get his film out there and also not spend any more money that he knew the answer was going to be no. Newline had financially binding obligations to theaters to deliver this film by their specified date, and Newline found that the test screening scores from the rough cut that they had cobbled together. And displayed to the game's biggest fans, who loved seeing these characters from the game in very cool fights, they were good enough by their standards. So, although Kasnov felt that there was much more work that needed to be done, he did feel pressured to relinquish the film in its current state, even if he felt that it was not complete. Now, as with Mortal Kombat, no advanced screenings were held for film critics for Annihilation. And yet, just like the first one, it did debut at number one at the box office... Unfortunately, it lacked the legs of the first film because the first film stayed at that number 1 spot for 3 weeks. This one bounced out of the top 10 by week 4. It took in only $35 million in the United States and an additional $15 million in international markets where the first one made 70 and 80 million respectively in those markets. Unfortunately, having to release this film before Thanksgiving, maybe that wasn't the best choice because only young boys seemed to be very interested. In the film, and most of them happen to be in school, and you know Thanksgiving was is only a, a United States holiday generally. So, even for those families who were looking for something for the entire family at the theater, Mortal Kombat was really only appealing to the young boys. So, Robin Williams' movie Flubber did reap the benefits of that Thanksgiving weekend release. Now, Kasnoff does suggest nowadays that his. Keep it in the family philosophy, his promoting of the crew on the first film to higher positions for the second film, instead of just promoting Leonetti and then surrounding him with the best veterans in the business, that that was primarily the reason why the sequel had so many issues. Inexperience among the crew, requiring many to do double or triple duty to try to cover the things that were lacking. You know, maybe even with the higher budget, their reach was really exceeding their grasp, and in the end they were left scrambling to try to put together whatever they had into something that was barely workable instead of something that at that point they were trying to fine tune and polish. Now, Shu has a different take. He thinks that the failure for Annihilation resulted from Kasanov trying to cram in too much fan service all into one movie. Every character, every signature move, regardless of any rationale for their inclusion were shoehorned in there. It came at the expense of character development and story, and ultimately, it all fell apart because nobody cared about the fight scenes when they didn't have an investment in these characters beyond the game. Now, the telltale sign of the step down in quality for Annihilation came from the original Mortal Kombat game creator, Ed Boon, During an interview when he was asked which of the two movies that he preferred between Mortal Kombat and Mortal Kombat Annihilation, he said that that question was like asking whether somebody preferred to drink lemonade or urine. (laughs) He also called Mortal Kombat Annihilation the worst moment in the entire history. As far as my take, well, I think this sequel spends most of its focus on the visuals. It doesn't really enough on storytelling. So Shu is right as far as what the problems with this film are. Because this is a movie, it feels gutted by the production process, it really strips away all attempts at basic exposition. It streamlines everything to give maximum exposure to the fighting, to the beautiful women, to the 3D computer-generated effects. You know, the bells and whistles take the center stage, and what should be the fundamental aspects of a movie, from storytelling and characters and whatnot, those are barely dealt with at all. Now, at the very least, Mortal Kombat Annihilation does deserve a modicum of credit for not completely rehashing the exact plot, even though it ignores the conclusion of that film to bring back a lot of the same characters. You know, the fight choreography in this film was pretty good. You know, the look and the sound, the visuals all are a step up. I think that's because they had more money to play with. Kasnov did succeed in expanding the best aspects of its predecessor if he thought the best aspects were the fight choreography and visuals. But it is a complete failure, everywhere else. This adherence to fan service completely overpopulating the story with so many game elements that it really ceased to work as a standalone cinematic adventure. The actors who didn't return I think were absolutely lucky because Annihilation offers nothing in the way of characters to portray, Plot cohesiveness, passable dialogue, they were all jettisoned here. Everybody's given short shrift by this film. We're dropped right into the middle of the action with dozens of new characters from the games. They're introduced here with no explanation of who they are or why we should care at all about them as soon as they're introduced and they're engaging in battle sequences. I mean, if you don't have the back history of the game coming in, you're gonna be completely bored by whatever you see here. In place of the story here, a cavalcade of wire fight sequences rife with CG effects that are completely obvious. You know, if you want to compare this to the original, you, know, you could say it's more impressive, but it pales against better action films that have comparable, maybe even higher budgets that were out in the theaters at the time. I think most audiences have out and out rejected this sequel soundly. Although, maybe if you're a a hardcore Mortal Kombat gamer, you may have fonder feelings for the film because you're seeing favorite characters brought to life, so to speak, in a big screen manner. So, a fatality for the Mortal Kombat film franchise at this point, even though the game franchise did continue after a brief recession, it was resurgent sometime later when the games got more interesting and people were more nostalgic for the property later. So, all in all, I can only give Mortal Kombat Annihilation two stars out of four. And that's pretty generous, by the way. Two stars, though, on my scale means that it's lacking something vital that would keep it from being something I could recommend to most people. And that which is lacking here is... This emphasis on story and characters. If they had done what they did in the first film and just tried to make a good movie out of what they had, even though it was a dumb story idea, instead of just trying to placate the game's audience by just giving them fan service moments with these characters that they like from the game, you would have a better movie. But that was not to be. And to me, that is exactly why Mortal Kombat Annihilation fails as a film. And Two Stars really is the most almost anybody outside of those who know the back history of all of these characters should probably give it. So that's it for Mortal Kombat, at least the 1990s movies. Uh, if you have your own thoughts on Annihilation, a different take maybe than I have, or if you just want to agree, you can find my contact information on my website. That's a quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram are also there if you want to follow me. Now, as far as what I'm going to be talking about next week, well, it's going to be kind of interesting. I'm going to do something I haven't really done before. I'm going to be splitting the review into talking about a movie that was never made, and that was called Mortal Kombat Devastation, which was going to be the third movie in this original Mortal Kombat series that was done by Larry Kasnoff. Not only its attempts to get off the ground, but ultimately why it was never made. And then I'm going to be talking about the next feature-length film that was done in this franchise, even though they had some TV and web work in between, and I'll be talking about those too. It came out actually in 2020. I'm not talking about the new film that's just out in 2021. I'm talking about Mortal Kombat Legends Scorpion's Revenge, an animated feature that was done in 2020. Basically, you know, straight to streaming and video for people who really enjoy the Mortal Kombat franchise, but it does tie in somewhat to the Mortal Kombat franchise because Kevin Michael Richardson, who voiced Goro in the original 1995 film, he comes back to voice Goro in this animated cartoon, too. And it's also based on the same Boone and Tobias video game series. So I will be talking about that from 2020, Scorpion's Revenge, a part of the Mortal Kombat Legends animated series that they intend to make so check that out if you want to keep up with the reviews and until next time thank you so much for joining me on this journey to the 90s and beyond